What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we have got a treat for you today. Last time we told you we would be back this time with a murder mystery from the development of the motion picture technology history. And uh, today, our friend Scott Benjamin is joining us on the show. Yeah, that's right. I mean, people keep turning up dead in the history of uh, the motion <laughs> picture. So we thought we'd bring uh, bring in uh, somebody extra to help us out with uh, the heavy lifting on this one. Scott loves murder, and he's really great. <laughs> great at talking about it, and uh, I, I think it's going to be so much fun. So let's go right to our talk with Scott. Hey, so if you have been listening to this show for a while, and if you have made it to the little coda we tend to do at the end of every episode when we when we do our outro music, uh, we you, you've probably heard us mention Scott Benjamin, who helps with uh, research on this show, and we have got such a treat for you. Scott Benjamin is joining us in studio today. Scott, it is a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. What should people know about you? <laughs> well, I've been around here for a long time. I've been a podcaster with House Stuff Works originally uh, for, gosh, about 11 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've taken the last couple of years off off air, I guess, um, as I do research and, and writing for some other shows and, and true crime stuff. In fact, I've got an, an all-new true crime podcast coming out pretty soon of my own. I uh, can't really give you too many more details about it right now, but uh, but it's it's on its way. But this is one. This is key to why we're having you on here now, because you've been helping us with the the invention research, and then suddenly we ran across a little bit of true crime, uh, or potentially true crime, or at least a mystery mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of embedded in the research for the invention of the motion picture. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I thought this was just a little bit too juicy to let it go. You know, without mm-hmm. without investigating this just a little bit more. And uh, to be honest with you, it's about a hundred and what hundred and twenty nine year old 
cold case now. Wow. So I don't think we're going to, you know, be uh, you know, solving anything we'll today. We'll solve it today, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so, but we'll, we, we could try at least. We can at least, uh, you know, let people know what's happening and let them investigate it for themselves and, and see what they think because there's a few theories about what happened. All right, so here's, here's what's going on. Um, we tend to credit the invention of the motion picture camera to either Edison or the Lumiere brothers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we've got we kind of know the history behind that mm-hmm. and the timing. It's all kind of strange timing. It all ties in very, very closely. Well, it appears that there was somebody that was filming motion, well, filming uh, scenes long time prior to that, six, seven years prior to that. Yes. Um, in 1888. And the earliest film that we have uh, on record, anything that remains still, is from 1888, October 14th, 1888, as a matter of fact. Um, we know the date because of a specific reason I'll tell you in a minute, but it's called the the Roundhay Garden scene. Mm-hmm. And that was shot by um, a man named Louis Le Prince. And Louis Le Prince, of course, French-born French born, um, inventor. He had a lot of other things that he had, he had developed, but a lot of them had to do with uh, cinematography, the early days of cinematography. Mm-hmm. Um, he filmed this scene. It was just, It's just like 2.1 seconds, I think, very quick, but it does show motion. And he was using, you know, a type of film that was – it was the early days of film. The, the, uh, um, it was paper-backed and, yeah. you know, it had a, a very complex way of getting this, you know, down and captured. Now, this uh, one, the Roundhay Garden scene, is this before the celluloid film? It is just before the celluloid film. Yeah, okay. right. Um, so that was – just just after this, uh, he had not yet really quite kind of experimented with that yet. Um, they know the date of this film because specifically 10 days later, one of the people that appeared in the film died. Hmm. So it was like, you know, this is filmed on October 14th, but on October 24th, um, his mother-in-law, who was shown in the film, passed away. So they know specifically that it was prior to this date in, in 1888. It's, it's provable by that. Um he did another scene that was like this. I think it was a traffic crossing Leeds Bridge in 1888 as well. And there's a few other early films that have survived, uh, but they're all from right in this in this time frame. The stuff from Edison and from the Lumiere brothers are in you know the uh, well the early um, 1890s. Yeah. Um, and then the patents came later, but that's part of the story that we're getting to here. You know the patents. Right. So we know that uh, Edison was was very much like a patent hawk, or is that the right <laughs> word? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a little bit of over-demonization of Edison that maybe goes on on the internet today. Uh, a few years back, what was it? There was some like popular comic strip where it was basically like, Tesla is great, Edison sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which, which of course it's, it's – you know, it's 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 probably a flawed idea to really go all in on on, on either individual as being uh, you know the, this 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 angelic figure of invention or this demonic adversary. Yeah, maybe actually it oversells Tesla instead of underselling Edison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, well, uh, you know, one of the problems I guess is that Edison Edison had a huge laboratory that he worked in mm-hmm. where he employed many many inventors, and then of course anything that was invented under that umbrella. He would then take the credit for it. He would right. say, you know, this is Edison's invention. It's just right. like any other major corporation does now. The automotive companies do it all the time. You know, people invent features, functions, you know, uh, um, parts, components. And yeah, they, they may get the patent, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Ford or GM owns that product. They own that uh, that that uh, the patent. They get the royalties from all that. Well, this is something we've seen uh, over and over again, just looking at the history of photography and, um, and now the motion picture, is that, 
you know, we want to think about the inventor as this, uh, this, you know, this this individual that's just uh, out there figuring out stuff on their own. And, and a lot of a lot of inventors do fall into that category. But increasingly, this, the closer you get into the modern era, the more you see this uh, industrialization of invention, uh, the the corporate um, use of invention. And so, you know, Edison is just a part of that growing trend. I mean, we already talked about Kodak on the show. Yeah, I mean, we tend to think of inventors as, or we like to think of inventors as like like Victor Frankenstein, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the independent scientist uh, working on a problem in solitude with their own mad genius. But more often, it's true that inventors need to be part of a, a system that's like providing infrastructure that makes their invention possible at the same time that they're working on the invention. And the, the movie camera is a perfect example of this because you couldn't really have the kinds of movie cameras that even Edison's people came up with, like uh, William Dixon came up with, until you had celluloid film. And that was what, you know, other people were working on. What would Frankenstein have been like, uh, the novel, had it been Frankenstein, Inc. that, <laughs> right, <laughs> that yeah. created the monster? Yeah, Edison's <laughs> like, you know, he gets one of his little lab assistants, like, oh, resurrect the dead, I, mm. you know, and then I'll get the patent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, and this stuff is happening on separate continents as well. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it, it's just one of those times in history where, you know, the, they're working on the same thing hundreds if not thousands of miles apart, mm. and they don't quite know it yet. They don't each, – each doesn't know what the other one's doing right at that moment unless, you know, there's some talk within the community of, of scientists, you know, of inventors, of, of what they're working on, and uh, and – Likely, they would have kept that pretty, you know, close to the vest. They wouldn't have really said, hey, I'm working on this new camera and here's – in fact, here's a drawing of how it works. Why don't you uh, take that back <laughs> right. to the lab and see if you can perfect that. No, it, it doesn't work that way. They, t- they keep them really, really tight um, until well, – of course, they, you know, the goal is the patent, of course, mm-hmm. you know, to make the, the royalties from this invention. And uh, apparently, uh, it looks like Le Prince beat Edison to the, uh, you know, to the mark there on the one. So he made all the money, right? No. <laughs> no, didn't make any money on it. In fact, uh, I guess maybe we should jump right into the story here at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. What, tell what us happened. about the mystery, so, Scott. All right, so you know he's he, he's working on all the stuff. He actually successfully films these scenes: the Roundhay Garden scene, you know, the uh, the traffic crossing Leeds Bridge, etc. And he's got this d- device. It's a it's a single lens camera. Mm-hmm. This is an improvement over a camera that he had just prior to that, which was like a. A 16 lens camera that shot. It was actually two banks of eight lenses, I think, that were that would quickly take images, and and then you could put those together and then show them in rapid succession and, and make you know make a moving image out of them. This is a single lens camera that would record continuous motion. Right. And, so and this requires less laborious editing. Uh, yes. Yes. Exactly. Right. And uh, again, this is the old paper-backed film at this point. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the not the celluloid at this at this point. Um, but he has this invention. He's ready to uh, find. He's finally, after you know, showing it to uh, friends and family, and you know, projecting these on on screens in his in his laboratory or wherever. You know, these private showings. He's ready to go with to you know to the public with this to to show it publicly and then file for a patent in New York City here in the United States. And this is all going to happen in I believe in October of of 1890. Mm-hmm. That's when it's supposed to happen. And so prior to that, you know, he's he's still kind of touring around and he's got his family trying to get things together in New York City, trying to get things like a place to do this, you know, a, a, a proper venue, et cetera. And, uh, and they're working on that and they've got it. He's still in France 
and he makes a trip to see his brother, which is uh, expected at this point because I guess his uh, his mother had just passed mm. uh, just, just prior to this. So his brother is in charge of the estate and kind of breaking up the estate and, and you know, the, the, the will, I guess, you know, executing the will. So he makes a trip uh, to Dijon, France, and he is – you know, he spends like three days with his brother and who knows, you know, what's going on there, whether it's, you know, they're talking about finances or whatever. I'm sure there's a lot to discuss at that point. Uh, but then his brother takes him to the train platform, you know, the uh, the train um, station there in town mm-hmm. in, in Dijon. And it's a Dijon to Paris express train. So it's not going to stop anywhere. It's going to go straight from there right to Paris. And he's back where he has to be. And then I think he's going to head to England and then to New York for this uh, for this you know, the showing, this patent awarding or whatever. Um, his brother says that he put him on the train, on the platform, and that's the last anybody ever saw of huh. the prince. He just disappears somewhere in between Dijon and Par- and Paris. On a nonstop train. On a nonstop train, he completely disappears, and his luggage disappears. There's no paper record of him being on the train, really. Um, you know, other than his brother's word that he put him on the train – no one can remember seeing him on the train. Like he didn't share a cabin with anybody or anything like that. And this is a, a pretty notable guy. And, and aside from that, the guy was six foot four. Uh-huh. So he kind of stands out. He's yeah, a yeah, tall, he would stand thin out guy. today. Yeah, he yeah. would. He's a tall guy. Um, uh, I don't know how well how well known he was at that point, if anybody could really recognize him. I don't think that he was. Um, but there's really no sighting of him on the train itself and certainly not in Paris when when it arrived. So – Obviously, that seems suspicious, like that people don't normally disappear from trains. <laughs> no, no. But uh, so, so the question would be, are there any reasons people had to suspect foul play uh, related to his invention other than just the fact that he was about to debut a, a hotly contested invention for which people would be competing for patents? Well, the timing is extremely convenient for anybody else who might be working on this a similar invention. Right? Uh-huh. I mean, so think about who that might be, and we'll talk about <laughs> them in just a moment. But uh-huh. uh, all of this is going down on, on September 16th of 1890. He's, what, 49 years old at this point. Um, and again, just two months later, uh, or even one month later, I believe, he was supposed to be in New York to debut this. This And this would have uh, – clearly it would have revolutionized the industry. I mean it was something that was uh, – it, it was going to make him a lot of money. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. All right. So he vanishes. But, but, but then what's the follow-up? Who's looking for him here? Well, of course there's going to be an investigation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean his brother – his brother's word is that, you know, he put him on this train and and now he's just suddenly gone into thin air, right? So Scotland Yard is on the case. And you would think Scotland Yard would do a pretty good, a decent you know, examination of what's going on here, an right. investigation. The French police are also looking and his family, of course, is searching for him as well in addition to the other two agencies. So um, I don't know who they hired or how they went about that, the family themselves. But you've got three separate groups looking for him for years, really. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to track him down, trying to figure out exactly what happened because, again, it doesn't just happen like this. So, um, it's just a real strange occurrence. So if he disappeared, could you tell initially what the predominant theory was like at the time? Did they think he was dead or did they think he had run off or what? You know, I don't know if there was a, a predominant theory at that time. I think there were just so many different thoughts going through everybody's head like what could have happened to this guy? You know, there's a lot a lot of these – 
came up later in time. I mean, some of them are like, you know, discussed in the 1960s, you mm-hmm. know, so we're still talking about this guy 75 plus years later with a new theory about what might have happened. But there are there are three or four main theories that have been tossed around for the last oh, 129 years. Now, <laughs> the, the more recent theories are going to, you know, pertain to our, our, our you know, our modern um, interpretations and really why we remember this guy. Sure. But, but at the time, I'm thinking, like, surely they probably approach this in the same way one might approach a modern disappearance. And they would look to, they would look to family. They would look to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, connections uh, and, and major stressors in their personal life. I mean, this is a guy who recently lost a loved one, may have been involved in some, and, and I mean, was definitely involved in some sort of estate mm-hmm. uh, situation. Sure, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess we can just talk about the very first theory, which was, of course, suicide. Mm-hmm. They thought maybe he had jumped from the train on his own somewhere between Dijon and Paris, but they, they searched, you know, trackside that whole distance, didn't find anything, didn't find, and of course, you know, why would he take his luggage with him if he did that? And not only right. that, it would make it even more visible if, you know, there's the, the body and luggage mm-hmm. somewhere, you know, in the woods in between or something like that, you know, or would, if he jumped off a bridge or Right. Knows. Okay, so I guess I'd have two questions about that. Number one, sure. if anybody thinks it's suicide, is there any physical evidence to indicate that? No physical evidence. That's the thing. All of this is just circumstantial evidence because yeah. there's no body. There's there's no proof of anything. No one saw him. There's no witnesses. Uh, but you know, the theory, I think the, one of the theories behind the suicide thought is that um, he, wa- he was in a significant amount of debt when he died. That was the other thing I was going to ask, his yeah. motive. Yeah. yeah. So he's, you know, he's an inventor. He's probably borrowing, taking loans from people to, to you know, get these inventions off the ground, you know, these fledgling inventions. And I, I have seen numbers around, and you know, th- these numbers are suspect because they come from a lot of different places, and you read different numbers everywhere. But they said that he was somewhere around $84,000 in debt at the time of his death. And that would have been a lot of money, and it still is a lot of money, I guess, but it would be so much more in right. 1890, you know, kind of an unheard of amount. And, um, you know, he, I guess he didn't really know the um, the true success of his of his new invention. He wouldn't know exactly what that would have brought him, the windfall that that would have meant. I mean, I knew mm-hmm. he he thought it was big, and of course he was trying to patent it, but um, I don't think he had any comprehension of the type of money that that would have brought in. Had that been the the fact, it's it's not very likely that he committed suicide either, because he he did have this. He had a loving family. He there were a lot of letters that were shared between. Um, you know, later on that were shown between him and his wife and other members of his family. And, you know, his whole family was behind him. They were all supportive. It wasn't like, you know, he was, um, I don't know, it wasn't like he was ostracized in some way. You know, he was mm-hmm. he was definitely a, a, a tight part of this, this close-knit family. So the suicide theory is rather unlikely. Huh. For a few reasons. All right, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Hannah Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. 
players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. Now, I know another one of the theories, which I guess maybe we can get to next, Mm -hmm. uh, is the one that involves some kind of industrial escapade. Uh, Or (laughs) should we do that next? Yeah, sure. Why not? That's that's another very popular one, right? So I do think we want to be careful not to just uh, blithely throw out uh, historical murder accusations, but we wouldn't be doing this from out another – out of nowhere, like other people have sort of alleged this based on just circumstances, right? Sure. Yeah, it's all circumstantial. Everything is in this in this case. Again, there's nothing really concrete here to, to, to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the theory, if you uh, if you want me to just jump right into it, you got to jump right in. All right. <laughs> so it's the timing is so suspect in this, and we we mentioned you know there's somebody else involved and. Thomas Edison's name gets thrown into the mix quite often when we're talking about this. That uh, that Thomas Edison actually had um, Louis Le Prince assassinated on that train or somewhere near that train. Now, was this something that was alleged by anyone at the time or was it only an accusation that was alleged like historically as an interpretation many years later? I believe that the family thought initially that that's what – this, this was oh, all about okay. because – and I don't think initially – I don't think they initially 
came up with this theory. I think that later uh, we'll find out, you know, there's some other things that go on too that uh, that kind of uh, – they kind of demonize Thomas Edison a little bit um, mm-hmm. um, in the way that – the patent was eventually handled. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. But. <laughs> well, I do know I read, right? Am I wrong in saying that at some point um, Louis Le Prince's wife said that he had left New York because he was trying to escape being pursued by industrial spies? Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. So there's some background there, a little bit. You know, that, okay. uh, that there is there there is a little bit of uh, that intrigue that you know there could be something going on there that's n- a little more nefarious than we would like to uh, to think now yeah. of, of this person you know Thomas Edison um but then again that's like secondhand hearsay right exactly yeah that's right and a lot of this is i mean a lot of it is you know you know this person said this to this agency and they reported that and you know it's just it, it gets kind of distributed or passed down and, and it changes a little bit along the way right and then also like if someone is you know allegedly speaking to paranoia about industrial spies following them around like that also i mean you could interpret that as being a sign of of uh, you know some form of you know uh, uh, not conspiracy but perhaps uh, you know mental illness. Yeah. Oh sure, that's also possible. And, and we're not uh, we're stress. Know, we should say yeah, this yeah. right now. I guess we haven't even said this, but uh, but Thomas Edison wouldn't have been you know the the hitman. He wouldn't have been the guy <laughs> right. you know the guy pulling the uh, the cord tight around the other guy's neck or anything. Right. It would have been uh, henchman or if if it was. You know, mm. something of that nature. You were nature. thinking of From Russia with Love as well. We can't help but think of all the cinematic uh, train-related murders. Yeah. Oh, and man. Piano Wire and all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas Edison played by, uh, what's his name, Quint. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Robert Shaw. Yeah, Robert How Shaw. How could I right. not come up with his name? Yeah. All right. So, I mean, it's it's fascinating the timing of of all of when all this happens and the way that Edison then benefited from the death of Louis Le Prince uh-huh. um, if, via the patent. So remind and, us again exactly of the timing here. Okay, so the timing is that in uh, I guess it would be September sixteenth of eighteen ninety is when Louis Le Prince went uh, went missing, mm-hmm. and again Edison was simultaneously working on his own camera, but it wasn't ready yet at the time. Right. Very, very close. Now that the they got their patents in 1891. Yeah, that's right. And he he was supposed to have the showing or the the public viewing of his device, his his, uh, his camera. Le Prince was. Le Prince was in October of 1890. So the timing is just far too convenient for Edison. It raised a lot of eyebrows. Let's mm-hmm. just to say because he benefited in such a, a tremendous way from this uh, because his name is now tied in with. Uh, the birth of cinematography, the birth of of motion pictures, really, um, as our Lumiere brothers, who who came about just a little bit later, I believe, right? Um, I, so nobody's alleged. I mean, even if there's not much to these allegations, nobody's alleged that the Lumiere brothers were involved. No, absolutely not. No, it's all it's all focused it's, on Edison, it <laughs> right? Is, yeah, that's right. Because well, well the was, Lumiere brothers, I think, like one of the things there is that like, a lot of the interpretations are that they they didn't necessarily see the long-term future of this technology themselves. So they don't seem to have the character of like, you know, viciously plotting for their, their uh, you know, their, their takeover of, of the culture via their, this new tech that they've developed. No, no, absolutely not. It, it's, yeah, that shouldn't, their name shouldn't really come into the assassination um, theory at all. I, don't think. <laughs> I mean, we'll stick with Edison being uh, the scapegoat on that one. And, and, you know, it's funny as I was reading this. You'll come across so many different versions of this and the way that this all went down. And and Joe, you and I had a discussion uh, earlier in the office about about some of the stuff that's very very misleading. 
Oh, yes, that's right. Well, I mean, so there is one – I was looking for good like uh, – you know, articles in journals, like journals that would cover the history of photography and mm-hmm. stuff like that, peer-reviewed kind of things. And there's one article that is widely cited around the internet that alleges the discovery of a uh, diary entry by Thomas Edison from 1890 where he essentially confesses to the murder. Do you have the exact words with I, you? I do. I, w- yeah, I want to be clear. We're going to – Heavily caveat this in a second. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> supposedly the word – should I tell where this letter came from or do you want the exact yeah, No, yeah, go ahead. All right. So this supposedly comes from a graduate student at the University of New York um, named Alexis Bedford. And in 2008, it was it was said that he was, he was studying uh, chemistry and photography and was conducting research into history of motion pictures for about a year and a half prior to this discovery. Mm-hmm. And the search leads him to what they called the Inner Forgotten Archives of the New York Library. Okay. So that's all right. mysterious already, right? It's probably yeah. a room full of dusty books and, uh-huh. and all that. So he, he's finding, um, you know, these journals, these notes, these pages, and, you know, that, that uh, are actually the work of Thomas Edison. And he stumbles across this book that's just kind of fallen apart. It's a leather-bound book. It's very dusty and old, but it's mm-hmm. a journal of Thomas Edison. Now, it would be fantastic to find something like that that was, uh-huh. you know, at this point undiscovered, really. It was just put in the, on the shelf and left. Um. In the journal, you know, of course, he, he jotted – and he was known to keep journals like this where he jot down ideas and thoughts and sketches. All, mm-hmm. Most inventors do that. All of them do probably. Uh, but he finds the following note and it's got the date of September 20th, 1890, which is four days after Le Prince went missing. And the note says exactly, Eric called me today from Dijon. It has been done. Prince is no more. This is good news, but I flinched when he told me. Murder is not my thing. <laughs> I'm an inventor, and my inventions for moving images can now move forward. That's the end of the entry. So I have <laughs> seen this cited all over in, like, blog posts and even in books. I looked up – this has been cited yeah. in books as evidence of Edison's involvement in this supposed murder. I am 99.99% certain that this is a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean a work of fraud. I don't mean like a uh, something that is trying to be passed off as nonfiction. I believe that this article is intentionally published as a work of fiction that has been misinterpreted as a as like a straightforward report of a real event. What led you to believe that? And there are a bunch of things. I mean, number one, it's— Well, a, number one, it's if this were true, this is just a straight-up murder confession. Yes. You know, or at least conspiracy to murder. Well, I mean, the, the language of it is somewhat yeah. anachronistic. Murder is not my thing. It is not my yeah. thing. Very <laughs> clumsily written, isn't it? Uh, uh, well, no, I mean, uh, on one hand, I want to say as a work of fiction, I think this isn't that bad. It's, it's, it's yeah. kind of interesting. But So I tried to look up the names that are cited in this article, like of the student who discovered this sure. and of another historian who's named in this article, I can't find evidence of these people. They don't appear to me to be real people. Um, There's, of course, that problem. One thing that I noticed is that it says, Edison says in his confession from 1890 in his diaries that uh, he says, Eric called me today from Dijon. So in 1890, he received a transatlantic phone call. That is not possible. I do not think there were transatlantic phone calls in 1890. I know when the first there, one was made. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, January 7th, 1927. <laughs> ah, so 37 years after this call was supposedly made is when, is when he claims – or this, this note – 
claims that he received a phone call. I think we've had a problem here of just mislabeling an article from a journal that should have been clearly noted as a piece of fiction but has confused a lot of people. Right, and it could have been more clearly labeled in the print version but was then digitized. That's uh, possible, yeah. Correctly. You you said earlier as well, Robert, that, uh, you know, there have been pieces of fiction that have been passed off as scientific. Uh, well, or, or, or at least have been published in scientific journals. Um, yeah, not even necessarily passed off. Right, right. right. Just like presented, like, hey, uh, like Peter Watts was the example that came up. Peter Watts, uh, former marine biologist, uh, turned sci-fi writer, and some of his works of short fiction have appeared in scientific journals. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, but but they were they were they were not presented as, as science. But then again, if if a if a science can well imagine where if a journal were digitized. Uh, uh, I wouldn't even say incorrectly, but without like sufficient, uh, uh, you know, metadata, metadata or, or branding, like you could have something that is that that is fiction would show up and be like, oh, well, here's this, here's this uh, murder confession uh, that just shows up out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it seems completely implausible, doesn't it? I yes, mean, it, no, I, I do not think this happened. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, I, I just, I don't put a whole lot of stock behind it. But uh, I think a lot of people do. A lot of people like the intrigue of of thinking that you know Edison was really that bad that he would have somebody offed over an invention. Well, I mean, he, he, he did kill Topsy the elephant. <laughs> yeah, so there, and horses and yeah, other dogs. He killed animals. some dogs, maybe? Yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, he liked to experiment with electricity, didn't he? I mean, Tom, I'm not saying I think it's impossible that Thomas Edison had something to do with this, but I definitely think that this thing about his murder confession in the diary is a work of fiction that has been misinterpreted as a real factual article. And number two, I, I don't know. We, we should be careful about making historical accusations of murder just based on circumstantial evidence. Because yeah. remind us again, there is no physical evidence of this whatsoever. No, right? no, nothing concrete at all about But, about but there is this. often this, uh, this, this tendency, I think, to want to see the past in movie form. And, you know, in, which is ironic given we're talking about motion pictures. We want to see it dramatized. You know, we, we want to think it uh, more along the lines of the prestige you know, right. uh, with, with it had a, a villainous uh, Edison in it. Uh, right, who did send henchmen to, like, hack up uh, yeah. Tesla's stuff. Yeah. It's <laughs> great. Uh, well, uh, okay, maybe maybe it's possible, but not, not really that likely. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd go with that. Okay, all right, so... That was uh, that was the second one. There's an there's actually three, four, there are five here total. If you want, because I've kind of thrown in yeah, yeah. one well, of my so other ones. Out that, uh, all right, so number three would be the disappearance that was a disappearance that was ordered by the family. Now, again, pretty unlikely in this case because it was a tight knit family. We do know know that from notes that were passed between family members. Uh-huh. It was a loving tight knit group. Um, but his brother is the last one to see him alive, and there's this whole estate business, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, that, that's. Yeah, exactly. So that's a, that's a possibility. the 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 disappearance that was ordered by the family was something that was born out of the idea that uh, Le Prince could have been a closeted homosexual. Hmm. That you know he had a family, he had kids. However, he was carrying on these uh, these other relationships that were homosexual in nature, and the family was at the time embarrassed by this and sent him away to live somewhere else without them. Uh, you know, that he was kind of the shame of the family at this point. And so, like, they, they banished him into some kind of exile because he was gay? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the thought. That's the theory. And, uh, you know, I think that this is one of the ones that comes about much later. I think this is, like, from a, a 19... 19- 
66 French film history book. Okay. Uh, where uh, the guy, uh, Jacques, uh, I'll mess up the last name here, but Deland, I'll say. <laughs> That's probably his name, close to it anyway. Uh-huh. Um, he suggested that his disappearance was because of his family. They disapproved of his homosexuality. So they think that he fled to Chicago where he died in 19, I'm sorry, 1898 naturally. And again, I, I know these numbers are coming out of nowhere and there's not a shred of you know, evidence or proof that that's what happened. Huh. But, but it's just a theory. It's another theory that – and I don't know why DeLand thinks that, but he does. I Did, mean in much in the same way that it's possible that Edison you know, orchestrated a murder. I mean certainly we could imagine this being the case. I mm-hmm. mean it certainly lines up with uh, – uh, you know, um, uh, with homophobia at the uh, during that time period, and uh, but I would want, well, like, what's the actual evidence? I I think I've read a critique of this theory that said that there's really no evidence that he was gay. No, no, there's no there's no evidence of any of this. Really. Yeah, none of it. I mean, and not that he lived in Chicago, not that uh, he died in um, what did I say, 1898. There's no proof of that. There's no there's really nothing to this. It's just a, another theory that was thrown out there again as late as 1966. So we're talking. Uh, 76 years later, after the guy is gone, it's just a, a theory that was posited by somebody that, you know, you could grab onto and say, like, well, it's possible. You know, this reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, Jack the Ripper theories, uh, except you know, more limited in scope, I guess. But, uh, you know, Alan Moore's whole uh, um, evaluation of that is that it ultimately is this uh, this Koch uh, snowflake scenario. The whole, uh, the like Freemason conspiracy with uh, the, what, the surgeon to uh, the Queen Victoria. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, th- there, there are so many different versions. But ultimately, like his argument was, there's, we only know so much and we will only ever know so much. And, uh, you know, it's just a kind of an exercise in how many uh, little, uh, little uh, you know, blank spaces we can fill in. Sure. I, uh, I think actual historians of the period think that, like, that whole theory is, like, definitely wrong for mm-hmm. Jack the Ripper, right? At least that's what I've read. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, it's all possible, right? D.B. Cooper is another one, right? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. You, you, you Ever, talk about that to your blue in the face. And, you know, of course, there's always – it seems like there's – Every couple of years, there's someone who's making a deathbed confession that they are D.B. Cooper mm-hmm. or and, their father was D.B. Cooper. And it's kind of safe to do that in the same way it's safe to to continue to make a, a lot of ultimately kind of like crazy ideas because we don't know and we probably never will know. Yeah, yeah. Like, and that's exactly the, the scenario with this here. And so what you're telling us is that Thomas Edison wrote the Dear Boss letter like he was the Ripper. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he did the Whitechapel murders because yeah. – let's see, because he was afraid that they would get a Ahead of him on some kind of uh, knife patent. Yeah, that's good theory. Good theory. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like, well, very likely too. Back back to this case though. <laughs> what are some more of our theories? All right. So uh, the the other one, and this is really one of the last ones that you'll hear about. But then I've got another one that I want to throw in there too. Okay. Um, fratricide, which is his brother killed him. Oh well. Again, it comes and, back to his guess, brother being yeah, the last one who saw. Him. And it, yeah, exactly right. I mean, it, could it have been over money? You know, his mother's will. You know, the, did his brother uh, get greedy and want to take his share as well? And that's a, that's an, an you know entirely possible scenario. I mean, the only prince, uh, the only person that saw Le Prince at the Dijon station was his brother. No one else saw him on the train. No one else really. I don't even know if there's a report of him being seen on the platform even. But his brother swears that that's the last place that he saw him. He put him on the train with his luggage, and that was it. Then he just you know disappears into the mist somewhere. So, well, I guess a suspicion very often does fall when somebody disappears on the last person to have seen them, right? Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, of course, you know, Scotland Yard and the, and the French police and even the people that were investigating for the family, 
they all eventually interviewed everybody that was on that train that night. Mm-hmm. There was no, uh, you know, sense that anything aggressive was happening, you know, next door in the cabin or, you know, the, they, they heard or saw anybody being thrown from the train or jumping from the train or anything unusual. There was nothing really out of place on that whole thing. It mm-hmm. just, it, it's almost, it's, it's like he was never there. And I think that's the idea is that he really was never there. Right. You know, never kind of even got all this explanation, right? Yeah, exactly. The thought behind this is that his brother had him disappear, uh-huh. uh, to put it politely. One more theory. Okay. I'll, I'll let it go. There's there's other people that you know, kind of throw this around and talk about it and, um, in a way that doesn't make sense with a lot of what we've just told you. So that's uh, they all have some kind of hole in, in the story. But um, there's a theory that he actually did make it to Paris and he was on the train, took his luggage off the train, but somehow wasn't seen by anybody the whole time. And, you know, had to take a cab from the train station, which w- the train I think would have arrived around 11 p.m., so very late, he was going to go to a lab or, you know, somewhere to work, maybe a mm-hmm. study or something, a house. And uh, the theory is that, you know, the uh, the coach that he took from the train station to wherever he was going, the, the, the person who was driving the coach likely just, you know, knocked him over the head, stole his luggage, you know, which probably had some cameras and things in it, you know, or some devices, mm-hmm. photographic devices, and uh, and simply dumped him in the river. And that was happening, I guess, quite a bit at that time. If you go back and investigate, um, you know, murders at the time, it was not all that uncommon for someone just to be kind of off quickly overnight like that, um, dumped in the river, never to be seen again, well, um, or found as a supposed drowned victim. And right. There's kind of an interesting twist to that, too, is that in 2003, uh, someone's going through uh, the, the Paris police archives and found a photograph of a drowning victim from 1890 that looked a lot like Louis Le Prince. Huh. Really? Yeah. So uh, there is a photograph of a drowning victim that does match his description, that does look like him. Um, and that's a possibility that he did drown or somebody, you know, often made it look like a drowning. And, and that's when he was discovered. Well, this, this whole idea, just the basic idea that maybe he did make it to Paris, mm-hmm. like that opens it up tremendously because there are only so many ways to die on an express train to Paris, but there are hundreds of ways to die in metropolitan Paris. Yeah, but how does a six foot four man, uh, you know, blend in and not even make his appearance, you know, known on any of the cabins? You know, if it's a full train, I don't know. Yeah. But, um, uh, so why why do they think he didn't arrive in Paris? Like who who would have seen him there? Ah, uh, well, he was. Gosh, you know what? I don't. He was scheduled to go there to meet with friends, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then a return trip to England. So maybe maybe people were supposed to meet him in Paris and didn't, mm-hmm. or maybe he was supposed to meet them after. You know, I mean, I guess picking up a friend at eleven o'clock at the at the train station. That's kind of like it is now. You know, picking up a friend at eleven o'clock at the airport. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a, not a great favor to ask of somebody. You know, that sometimes you have to. But maybe maybe they didn't. They maybe they said you can catch a cab you know, meet me at this hotel in the morning or something like that. I, I'm, this is all, again, just theory. I don't really know the, the surrounding story about what was supposed to happen in Paris when, when he made it there. Right. Um, but, yeah, maybe he did make it. Maybe he didn't. We, we don't know. But he's – the theory, again, the, the or predominant theory is that he went missing somewhere between Dijon and Paris. He never really made it there. Hmm. But there's a lot of different – you know, ideas tossed about, and uh, I'm sure you can come up with five more, you know, scenarios that that might make sense. But the timing is just all very, very strange because, yeah. uh, again, this 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 whole thing comes back to this this patent that never really happened. But then Edison kind of swooped in and took the patent. The family, I guess, you would think the family could patent his devices, 
Um, I read somewhere that there is like a seven-year waiting period between when somebody goes missing and you can – I don't know if this is a U.S. patent law or what, but you're not able to patent the family member's item until after the person is officially declared dead. And I think he was declared dead in 1897, so that was seven years later. Hmm. Um, but in that time – in that window of, of time, that's when Edison came in with his uh, his new camera – and patented that device and, and, of course, made a fortune on, you know, the, the royalties. Hmm. So it, it just interesting timing with all this. And, of course, you know, there, that's sparked many patent wars. We know there are patent wars that were happening at the time over many, many different things. I mean, the Wright, brother, Wright brothers, they fought uh, patent wars for about 11 years. And the same thing with Alexander Graham Bell and the telephone it took something like 11 years and like 600 lawsuits, I think, wow. there over, was a the, huge, over the telephone. There was a huge patent fight just over celluloid film oh. uh, because it was apparently first developed in a sort of vague way with a kind of poorly worded patent by uh, by an Episcopalian minister from New Jersey named uh, Hannibal Goodwin. I think Hold that's on. right. Maybe Hannibal's maybe. right. <laughs> Yeah, I just looked it up. That's right. Hannibal Goodwin. Um, but then also that he was in competition with the patent fond celluloid film uh, that belonged to the Eastman Company. Uh, and so they fought over that. Of course, Eastman was producing, you know, celluloid film at uh, at at bulk, like mm-hmm. enough to sell it to Edison. And uh, Goodwin was not. This still happens today. I mean, uh, yeah. Sony and Kodak were in a, a patent war that lasted until uh, 2007 over uh, digital cameras. Oh, wow. So it's, you know, newer technology, but, you know, they're still fighting these same type of type of wars. You know, it happened with radio. It happened with cars, airplanes. It, name any big invention, light bulbs. It, it all, you know, went through the courts in some way many, many different times. And, and you know, there was always a battle over who, who invented it first and who has the rights to it and right. who gets the money from it. Right? And then here and then come the, the patent trolls. Uh, yeah, it's another layer of complexity. <laughs> That's to it. right. Yeah, there there are people that are patent trolls. That's right. Who just kind of scoop up the uh, the patents from other people that are more deserve or, or that are completely deserving of that patent, mm-hmm. um, and they take, of course, the credit for it. And and I guess maybe Edison would, you know, would he count as possibly a patent <laughs> troll? I mean, he had a different scenario. We talked about his labs and you know how he had. Uh, you know, lots of inventors working under his umbrella of yeah. you know, the Edison Labs, and and that was something different, maybe. But um, yeah, he's well. I I do think Edison was not above pouncing on somebody else's idea if yeah. he thought he could get there first. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I don't I don't know if you would think that this would all kind of play out smoothly in the courts, and it it certainly didn't. I mean, it wasn't uh, wasn't as as cut and dry as you might think. You know, um, Le Prince Le Prince's son, Ad, his name is Adolf. Mm-hmm. Um, he appeared in court, I guess, as a witness for uh, the defense in a case that was uh, brought by Thomas Edison against a company called the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company. The interesting (laughs) interesting thing about that is that company was founded in 1895 by William Kennedy Dixon, who was the guy that worked under Edison at his lab to create the camera. He he developed the camera. He's the one who who really did all, you know, Mm -hmm. the... uh, um, the photographic work on it, I guess, the lenses and, you know, the film and all that, you know, the, the, the technology that made that work, really. Yes. So he's the one, he's the founder of that company. So Edison is suing him. But Le Prince, uh, Adolf Le Prince, his son, again, comes in in 1898 and testifies um, as a witness for the defense in this court case. And 
He claims in that court case that Le Prince was the first and only inventor of cinematography. So he kind of throws in this bombshell into the um, into the the proceedings, and he says, of course, because of that, my family, um, my dad had been, you know, his, his dad had been declared dead the year prior, is then um, they they should be getting receiving the royalties for this award for this uh, this device, and of course the patent that goes along with it. You know, the the whole process, right? Well. He was unable to submit his dad's cameras as evidence in that court case. For some reason, the judge said, "No, you can't. You can't show me these cameras." He wasn't able to put it into um, into the uh, the cases as evidence, and so the uh, the court ruled in favor of Edison in that particular case. But a couple of years later, they overturned that, and I, you know the the direction was reversed, or the decision was reversed rather. But this is another interesting twist in the story: is that Adolf was uh, he's a young man at this time he's 29 years old um like two i think it's two years later it was in oh, i'm sorry three years later it was in 1901 so he's 29 he's out hunting duck hunting near his family cottage which is on fire island in new york state mm-hmm. and he ends up being shot to death hmm. and i don't know if he was hunting alone if he's hunting with somebody you would think that all this would have been a little bit more um you know public knowledge you know what happened but but the the recording of this is that he was just simply found dead after he was out duck hunting uh, with his his own rifle at his side. They don't know if it was suicide, if it was an accident. Of course, it could have been either one of those, right? But the the mother, you know, the widow now, Le Prince, uh, the, the, yeah, the mother of Adolf, says uh, that she thinks that it's a second murder, that, you know, the kid simply knew too much. And because he had testified in court, everybody else knew what he knew now. And hmm. and that was the reason for another murder. So there's another murder mystery at the end of that one. I, I, that's never really been solved either is that, you know, the son turns up dead at, at a young age just two years later, three years later. So obviously the Edison villainists are uh, – <laughs> yeah. yeah, what, they think he was involved in that too? <laughs> well, you know, that's – again, that's another theory. Yeah, that's a possibility of what happened. But then on the same hand, you can see why – you know, murder does not need to actually be involved for one to um, – for especially with the, this family to um, to have, uh, you know, some degree of hatred or, you know, distrust of Edison. Of course. And therefore, it's not that much more of a leap then given – you know, if you, especially if you're distraught over, you know, yet another uh, untimely death slash disappearance in the family to, you know, jump – uh, to this uh, th- this next uh, uh, you know level of accusation. Oh, for sure, and they're going to point to the villain that they already know. Yeah, he's I mean, already established as the villain of the piece, the villain of the family. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, again, I think this is just a, a fascinating part of history and something that I never expected to come across when we're talking about you know motion picture cameras. Yeah, I mean, it's strange how uh, you know that the story just. Uh, I don't know, it, it captivated me right from the beginning, but it's strange the, the twists and turns that this story takes. All right, time to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. 
I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So on the disappearance of Le Prince, um, if you, you you're someone who I think you've got a good sense for for crime and and cold cases and all that, if you had to go with your gut feeling, what do you think you'd say is most likely to you? What feels most right to you? What feels most right to me is that his brother killed him. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you mean all, having to do with the inheritance, or I, I do, and I think that it's uh, um, I, I think because of money is just such a strong factor in a lot of these cases, and especially you know when uh, you're talking about among family members where they're supposedly tight, but money does come between people like that, and it's unfortunate, but it happens, and maybe he didn't have the uh, he didn't have the um, the, the foresight to know that, you know, his brother would have been uh, so much better off. He wouldn't have been, you know, a, I don't know, a burden. I don't know. I don't know how better to put that. Maybe I'm saying that wrong, that, you know, he wasn't really a burden. It's just that he stood to make twice the amount of money from the inheritance as he would if his brother was still around. Hmm. Um, he could take his share and, and um, you know, it's just downright greed. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I – but ultimately, again, this is just a circumstantial hunch, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, any of them, any of these theories are, are possible, 
not very likely some of them but uh, but I think that the the uh, fratricide is probably the uh, the one that is closest to you know correct I think yeah yeah so what about uh, either of you any gut feelings on on what it might be I mean on one level we I mean we already we talked about uh, Mybridge who definitely <laughs> can murder yeah. somebody uh, there's no question about that so, yeah so there's so, so the idea that, that there, that there are, you know, there, there might be a murder in uh, photographic motion picture history, uh, you know, I'm, well, I'm already uh, on board with that reality. Um, I, I guess, I mean, I, I like your argument, though. I mean, when you come down to, like, what are the reasons uh, that, uh, that homicides are committed, uh, you know, generally it's going to be some sort of, uh, you know, family connection or, uh, you know, somebody the victim knew. Uh, not yeah. some shadowy organization that was plotting against them. Sure. So it seems like that, 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 uh, and also it, 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 it removes the whole mystery of where did, how do they disappear on the train? Uh, you know, and if he, if he, you know, jumped to his death, why did he take his luggage with him? And then why was that body and or that luggage never found? So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I like your argument on this. Okay. All right, fair enough. What about you, Joe? Uh, I don't know. I'm not good at things like this. I, I think sometimes of, what people say, and I know I don't want to malign you guys because I asked the question, but I think of what one time somebody asked Carl Sagan, uh, you know, do you think there are aliens out there or something like that? And he said, I don't know. And they said, well, what's your gut feeling? And he said, I try not to think with my gut. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I may have gut feelings, but I feel like maybe it's better not to say them. Uh, I guess I probably have a gut feeling that agrees with you. Maybe I, I tend to think, you know, it, when people are pointing outside of the inner circle, it very often is something inside the inner circle. Then again, a, a, you know, a random crime could have possibly explained it. Uh, I, yeah, I'm I, not I, very convinced by the uh, by the Edison thing. Yeah, I think I think like the the Parisian uh, argument. Yeah, that that also is kind of convincing. The idea that like, all right, maybe he made it to Paris. And they're just – people didn't notice him on the train. And then once he gets to Paris, there's, you know, any number of, of ways that he could have uh, met yeah. his uh, untimely demise. A, a robbery murder, which then resulted in the corpse that they found in the river that – see, that's – I don't know why he wouldn't have been discovered at that point. Why they yeah. would mm -hmm. – you know, um, I think – you know, wouldn't they even like publish photos of, of people that were drowning victims so that – you know, the unidentified bodies so that yeah. um, people – or they could uh, place them on view – in uh, some of the the morgues there in in town, I know, mm -hmm. um, because drowning was such a common thing, and these unknowns, they wanted to figure out who they were and you know where you know, where they came from. At least get them a, a proper burial, you know, and mm -hmm. allow their family to, to take the remains and you know do with them what they want. But um, I don't know; it just seems like it's it's a very possible scenario that yeah, he yeah. did make it to Paris, and yeah, he did uh, get offed by some you know cab driver. It's it's like the least cinematic uh, theory too, which I, I I feel like is often like a way to try and judge the past. Like which which is the least interesting story? Yeah. Um, then you know th there's a chance that that's the way to go. Oh sure, yeah, that's a very good point. If it makes a good story, you should be inherently skeptical. <laughs> All right, but I mean the bottom line is is we don't know. We probably will never know. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously, listeners out there, you may have some some theories. You want to chime in. You want to share uh, your uh, your solution to this mystery. Well, here's one thing I will say. If, you, if you're if you one of those people who likes to stick it to Edison, and I can sympathize, I understand sticking it to Edison, um, you don't have to resort to saying, I think he's a murderer based on no physical evidence whatsoever or, you know, <laughs> or referring to like a fictional story about a, about a diary entry. But you can say he didn't get there first. 
In fact, he didn't get there first in multiple ways. Like, LaPrince had the movie camera before Edison, definitely. And even Edison's own kinetograph and kinetoscope, you know, it looks like the heavy lifting was done by Dixon, not by Edison. Yeah, at this point, we're just arguing over when the patent was filed. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's all it really comes down to. And that, that, you know, then begets the money, right? I mean, that's the whole goal behind all of this, really, for them, was that, you know, I think maybe LaPrince had more of an altruistic view of this that, you know, he just simply wanted to make make it better, make photography better by you yeah. know, bringing motion to the screen in front of people. And, and maybe uh, Edison, I think, was more money-driven. Yeah. I, I think that's the way it, it comes down. And fame and credit-driven. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. And, I, um, and of course, that would have been great if that had come for LaPrince as well, but it, it never did. Well, maybe it will now. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Posthumously, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. Gosh, I wonder how much uh, how much of the family still exists. You know, I are there any princes out there still that uh, that might benefit from something like that? Or how how would they even benefit from something like that? Every film now made must give fifty percent of profits to his family. Yeah, they could charge per minute, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some exorbitant cost, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, Scott. Well, thanks for coming on the show here to yeah, chat uh, so a little uh, murder mystery with us. Yeah, here. well, I hope I didn't uh, leave you with more questions than answers. Um, but at you least, did, you know, but that's not your fault. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's what history does. Yeah, I guess so. We're uh, at least kind of reopening the books on this one and, and letting people know what happened. And um, I don't know. I, I like when you can kind of spark someone's interest in something and, and get them to search on their own and maybe kind of you know, figure out alternate theories or, you know, chime in with what they think may have happened. That's uh, that's always fun for me. Yeah, and certainly everybody loves a good murder mystery. So if, if we have, if this has helped make uh, the, the history of the motion picture more engaging for podcast listeners, then uh, then I'm in favor of it. Oh, great. I, ho- I hope it has. <laughs> I hope it has. And, and thank you again for inviting me here. I really appreciate the offer and uh, I'd love to sit in with you anytime. Absolutely. Oh, thanks so much for coming, yeah, Scott. It's been fun. All right. Well, there you have it. Thanks once more to Scott Benjamin for taking time uh, out of his day, out of his research to join us on the show to discuss a, a little invention and indeed uh, a little um, potential murder. Potential murder, potential suicide, potential runaway and hide in Chicago, potential. Were there any others? Do we have like a beast morph situation? Uh, there was potential hidden away by the family. Uh, we didn't even get into like any just crazy speculate. We didn't get into aliens. Yeah, no abductions. Uh, no. no uh, uh, Ranoff became Sasquatch. Or la- Langoliers. I mean, is it yeah. possible for Langoliers on a train? Uh, you don't need it, aviation technology for that to happen. I don't know. Uh, but uh, at any rate, we covered the the realistic ideas. That was a Jules Verne novelette. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Lang- Langoliers on a train. All right. Uh, well, thanks again to Scott coming on the show. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, I think this does this wrap it up for motion pictures, or are there going to be more motion picture episodes? I think we got one more motion picture episode in us. All right. All right. Well, stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for future inventions. We have some non photographic. Uh, cinema, cinematography episodes coming up uh, that are that are in the works. We've been on the photographic history train, and who knows if we'll ever get off. Uh, yes, if we'll reach the destination. We will reach the destination. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Invention, check out what the show's all, all about, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's the website. That's where you'll find all these episodes. Uh, but you can also find us anywhere you find a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, go there. Find us. Subscribe to us. Rate and review the show. Give us a whole bunch of stars. Say nice things about it, about, about us. That's the best thing you can do to support the show and help us moving forward. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. We've already thanked Scott a bunch of times on this one. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.